But let me explain something to you. I wrote about a couple hundred songs, you know? You know, I've got them all written down and all that, man. All right, I'll give you an example, man. I'll try to stick to a, a song that, uh, that'll make you some money. Uh, <laughs> let's see. Hello and welcome to the Matt's Movie Reviews Podcast. I'm your host, Matthew Pegovich, and this is episode number 237. Out now on video on demand is Manson, Music from an Unsound Mind, a documentary that delves into the life of infamous cult leader Charles Manson and his journey to obtain success as a musician, a journey which will see him rub shoulders and prevent many popular and influential figures in the music industry in Los Angeles. Joining me now to talk about this fascinating film is its producer and director, Tom O'Dell. Tom, I thank you very much for joining me today. That's okay, Matt. Hey. So many documentaries, Tom, have been made about Charles Manson, um, especially this year because it's the 30th anniversary of the Manson family murders. Um, Your film, however, really gives a different insight into his mind, and a lot of it has to do with the fact that he was a musician and he actually tried to obtain success through that avenue. I mean, when was the first time you heard about Manson's music um, ambitions? Uh, okay, well, I'm I'm not a particularly big kind of avid crime serial killer, anything like that. That's not what I've I've ever really been that interested in. So, um, I've always made uh, music documentaries, and music has been really, and the arts uh, has really been where I've I've focused in my career. And we were producing a birds documentary in 2007. I loosely knew the kind of Charles Manson, really loosely knew the Charles Manson story, but um, we were uh, producing a birds documentary in 2007. And the guitarist Jerry Cole, who was a member of the Wrecking Crew, who were basically the studio band for Frank Sinatra, the Beach Boys, the Birds, so on the Birds records, the Beach Boys records, that wasn't the birds and the beach boys playing the instruments. It was the wrecking crew. So how Blaine on drums, uh, uh, Jerry Cole, um, Carol Kay on bass and their producer was Terry Melcher. And Jerry Cole told us the, this amazing story about how he met Charles Manson through Terry Melcher and how they'd been prepared to do a session for it. Um, they'd been asked to do a session. So there was actually going to be at some point a professional session done at Gold Star Studios with the Wrecking Crew with Charles Manson. Mm. And it fell apart. Um, but then Jerry told us the rest of this story about Terry Melcher, Dennis Wilson, and it was fascinating. It was absolutely fascinating. I mean, I had no idea of any of this. And I'd seen stuff about Manson. And always the Manson stuff is, you know, kind of one of the greatest serial killers of all time. It's like... It, it, yeah, he's not. He didn't kill anyone. That's not the Manson story. This Manson story is so much more unique. And um, yeah, over the years, I did uh, I did documentaries on um, the Mothers of Invention, Frank Zappa's band. Some of them knew Manson. I spoke with Captain Beefheart's band, the Magic Band. They knew Manson. I mean, loosely, they'd met him like once or whatever. Beefheart had had a long conversation with Manson at a party. I mean, you'd love to be involved in that conversation. Two kind of acid gurus together. Um, but yeah, it just became clear that this was actually a much bigger story, and and that um, essentially the kind of people didn't want to talk about it because they didn't want to talk about how high up in the scene or how potentially high up in the scene Manson was because it would reflect badly on them. So there was this kind of wall of silence within the music world where people didn't really want to talk about how close they were, and I mean that includes to their deaths, Terry Melcher, Dennis Wilson, and. and 
to a certain extent, even now, there, there are a number of people who know stuff that we're never going to hear, you know. You mentioned before that you've had a career doing documentaries on bands, musicians, anything from Prince to Leonard Skidden and everything in between. But Charles Manson comes with a, a particular set of baggage with that story. Um, was there any kind of trepidation, trepidation on your part to delve into that kind of dark world where, as everyone knows, some truly horrific crimes really took place at the peak of Manson's kind of uh, um, life? Um, no, to a certain extent. I mean, I, I think always the kind of balancing act I wanted was I wanted this to be sober. I wanted it to be um, to be real, to talk about the actual Charles Manson rather than the creation that Charles Manson himself was created as well as the media. But it's, it's, he wanted everyone to think he was the monster as well, in a way. Yeah. Um, and so I kind of really the kind of th there wasn't really trepidation i mean two years ago back in yeah in 2017 we did a, a documentary series called wartime crime and the, one of the episodes i directed and wrote was on a serial killer called uh, dr um marcel petio who was a serial killer in vichy france who who murdered um jews mainly um uh, convincing them that he had ways out of nazi occupied germany and then would kill them and steal their steal their belongings mm. um he killed 47 to 63 people we're not quite sure i i went into the archives of uh, archived of paris and saw the autopsy photos of the some of the uh, there, there were children's arms and women's legs that had been sawn off by this guy once you've seen that to tell the truth it's like you know there are levels of horror and all horror is horror but it's like that didn't particularly bother me and i had no interest at all in going into like i, I you know hopefully you'll notice in the film but i do not i do not have a single photo of a dead body in the whole film i have no there isn't blood there's the writing on the wall that's because of the links to the music but that kind of salacious kind of element was of no interest to me whatsoever what i found really fascinating about the charles manson story was the the idea of the time and place that he was he was he could flourish i mean this was a guy who was institutionalized his whole life he comes out in the 60s and that um, hate Ashbury kind of um, uh, era in San Francisco in the 60s. That's where he really started to situate himself. And, and to me, that counterculture time, I think it was really kind of important because that's when kind of conventional thinking and, and traditional institutions, they'll shun to the sign people were looking for something different. And here comes this guy. I mean, people called him the wizard for a reason. There was a certain kind of appeal to him and a certain... I think one of your um, uh, interview heads actually said something about a certain electricity that he had. How important yeah. do you think the, the era, the just the philosophies of that time was, how important that was in establishing Manson, Manson establishing himself, himself at the time as this kind of like this prophetic kind of uh, guru figure? I think it's, that's why I said like the Manson story is so much more unique you know this isn't this isn't I mean you've got it with Mindhunters and you know or, or Silence the Lambs or whatever you know whatever we have this image of this kind of lone killer kind of thing that is is part of the kind of you know definitely part of the psychological makeup of the serial killer Manson doesn't share any of that with those guys basically he's not he's not that Manson only could have existed at this time in the 1970s the guy would have been laughed out of town yeah uh, it's basically you know i think it's really important manson came at the time of acid and acid lsd changed people's perceptions it made them see the world in a way that they never had before 
And people looked around and realized that all these people who hadn't taken acid, potentially, not all of them, but the majority, couldn't see the world or didn't see the world in this way. And so they all spotted this kind of empty materialism of the way that people were living, of what people were striving for, of what people's ambitions were. And it broke apart that kind of image. And so everywhere people were looking for new leaders to replace the authority leaders they had, you know, who perceived things in the same way or in a different way, who could see through, who could read between the lines, essentially, and see things with this new perception. And, you know, for some people, people look towards the Beatles. And, you know, Manson wasn't alone in scanning the lyrics to Beatles, you know, records or playing them backwards. You know, yeah. loads of people doing that. You know, music critics were doing that. People were looking to the Beatles for truth because the Beatles seem like they may have more truth. But, you know, the Beatles then look towards the Maharishi. So they need someone who's got a further truth, you know. And everyone's doing this. And there's a kind of... I always thought that there's a kind of like Yoda-like thing, you know, it's kind of like you must unlearn what you've learned. It's like everyone's kind of taking apart what they have and trying to find something new. And Manson walked into that and, you know, there's no doubt he, he, he did perceive the world in this different way and he actually had an authentic way of perceiving it differently as well as acid because he'd been in jail for so long, because he was separate from society. So he came out and he was actually a bona fide outsider. You know, he... he, he presented exactly what some of these guys were looking for. And I think really importantly is that he also, you know, as much as you could read, I don't know, Herbert Marcuse or, um, you know, Theodore Adorno, or you could sit and you could, intellectuals would be able to know that people had been seeing these truths for a, through these truths for a long time. They didn't need acid. But Manson did it on a street level. He spoke to people who weren't that bright or who had never thought about these things. And he was able to really sell it to them that he knew this truth. And they believed him. A lot of people believed him. I mean, that's the, that's, that's the case with Manson. So that's why he was able to do it, I think. Of course, the, mo the very important thing about that counterculture time was the music, the soundtrack to that whole era. Um, and your documentary... I think for a lot of people, myself included, is the first time we're going to hear Charles Manson's music. And to, to be quite honest, I was quite surprised uh, by the quality of the songwriting and the songs themselves. What were your initial reactions when you heard his music? Um, exa exactly the same. I mean, that, that was a key thing. I, I think with um, when, I, when I started working out how I was going to do the film, I thought um, I, I have done a number of music documentaries. Like I really love um, Anthony DeCurtis from um, Rolling Stone. He's, he's, he's just a great um, analyzer of the era and music. And so I immediately thought, right, I'm, I'm going to send this kind of these demo tapes to Anthony. I'm going to send them to John Stebbins, uh, the Beach Boys, Dennis Wilson biographer and Beach Boys writer, Don Priori. I'm going to send these out and see what these guys think because my, and have that in the film. And, and, and David Felton, who did the original Rolling Stone article back in 1970 when they interviewed him in jail, David Felton was the guy who was there. He's in the film and he hadn't heard these demos. And so, um, cause I was, exactly the same as you i mean i just thought wow this guy's actually i mean most importantly he's got a really good voice i mean yeah. i was i was expecting wild man fisher i was expecting an outsider artist who could have turned up on a more avant-garde kind of label like frank zappa's bizarre label or something and i did not expect someone who sounded like a little bit like rodriguez a kind of you know a proper singer songwriter kind of guy i wasn't expecting it i didn't expect the songs to be as delicate as they were at times it was it was is totally, it's almost incongruous, no, not incongruous, but it's, it's hard to, um, 
I don't know. I, I, I think that's part of the difficulty with this story. Is, is It's hard to see how a person who can write music like this and play music like this, how what happened happened. You know. Yeah, I mean, the Rodriguez um, uh, comparison you made there, that's something that came to me straight away because Searching for Sugarman and it just came out a couple of years ago, so a lot of those songs are kind of fresh as well. And, uh, yeah, and there was something... And I, and I, I got to take it back a little bit. I did hear Mance's music, but through a different lens. It was the Guns N' Roses cover of um, uh, "What's Your Game Girl." Um, yeah. Or "Look at Your Game Girl." Sorry, I think that was the first time I heard it. But it was quite a long time ago because that album, their covers the album, I think came out like in the in the mid nineties or something. So it was quite Early a long while back. I think that's right, yeah. Yeah, um, but yeah, I mean, it is quite... Because I was expecting the Rambling Madman, to the truth. I didn't expect it. It's kind of like the, the, the flow or the lyrics and the, the singing and such. It was just... It did it did really did catch me uh, by surprise. Um, now, Charles Manson, he's nothing without the Manson family. I mean, it, one and two just go together. Um, and you interviewed one of his followers. Um, I, I, I believe the na- lady's name was Diane, is Diane Lake. And... Um, it's really interesting hearing like her kind of side to the whole thing. Um, I'm just curious though. We were talking before about this was the era of acid and drugs played a big part in kind of manipulating the minds of these what they're essentially middle 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 class kids into doing things they wouldn't necessarily do. I'm curious though how important the music was in that kind of manipulative process. I mean, his music in particular. Um, I mean, these kids were, like I said, middle-class kids. They ran away from home, and then they became, you know, you know, people who ended up killing, uh, doing these high-profile killings, rather statistics way as well. Um, the music, though, how important was the music in luring them to do things that they usually wouldn't have done in a previous life? I, th- I think it's, it's, it's crucial. I mean, I think there's, there's absolutely no question. I mean, outside of speaking to Diane, I also spoke to Lynette from um, on the phone twice, lengthy conversations. She couldn't participate. but um, And she came from a different position because she's kind of still... Um, she, she hasn't been... Uh, you know, she, she hasn't got out of the cult, let's say. Mm-hmm. And um, But no, I think, look, when... Susan Atkins, who was one of the one of the killers, you know, Susan Atkins first met Charles Manson at a party where Charles Manson was playing his guitar. The thing that immediately attracted Susan Atkins to Charles Manson was his music. Diane was attracted to Manson's music. And, you know, he seemed he had that pull. He, he, he you know, I, I can't remember who was it he said to me. I, there was there was someone who said to me about. Um, oh, I remember who it was Eric Anderson, a folky from the from the New York scene in the 1960s. And he said to me, you know, back in 1963, all you needed to have was a, you know, was a good head on your shoulders, you know, and a guitar in your hand, and you could get any woman. And you know, that was it. If you were a musician at this time when music was seen as the, you know, the new manner from the gods, you know, the the if you were a musician and could play music, then you were immediately attractive. You immediately seemed cool, interesting. And I think more importantly, as the story went along, you know, um, they meet him in a kitchen, they meet him in the beach, they meet him in a, you know, in a, in a, what, what, you know, a a broken down house that's basically no one, you know, it's basically just homeless people are living there and hippies and whatever dropouts. And he says to them, I'm going to be successful. And lo and behold, you know, within a few months, they're living at Dennis Wilson's house. I mean, I, I, I still think the, the size of that, 
is is I've tried to get it across in the film and hopefully it's understood. Dennis Wilson was one of the biggest musicians in the whole of Los Angeles and a bunch of kids who were hanging around and taking acid were living at his house within months of meeting this guy, Charles Manson. Charles Manson was recording at Gold Star Studios. You know, it's like... He, of course, they thought he was going to be a rock star. I mean, he, he, everything he was saying seemed to be that this guy was really talented. You know, Neil Young was hanging around. All these different characters were hanging around. You know, it's, um, it's, it's crucial. I mean, I, I don't think any of it would have happened without the music. It really comes to back to a debate that's been raging for a long time now, and that's the role that art has in inspiring violent acts, whether it's true or not. I don't know. I'm, I'm, I, I'm, I don't think the theory holds any water myself, but it, I always always think to myself, if on one end of the spectrum you have someone like John Lennon who can write a song like Imagine, and this is a song that can conjure up feelings of peace and hope and love, can't we find on the other end of the spectrum someone like a Charles Manson who can write songs that can lead to violence? It's an interesting point, but I think actually... If you read Charles Manson's lyrics, Charles Manson's lyrics are very utopian and peaceful, mm. actually, and, and quite psychological. I think there's a psychological depth to something like Look at Your Game Girl. What, what Charles Manson's trying to do, which very few writers of the 60s I can think of were doing, um, even in his lyrics, he's saying, look, the whole world is a lie. You've misunderstood it. You're playing these games. Look into the true meaning of reality or whatever, you know. And he's trying to break things apart in his songs. Um, Cease to Exist fits the same model. Um, and in that sense, actually, there is a kind of utopianism to Manson's songs. And, and that's because I, I tried to get it, you know, I, I hope it comes across in the film. It was definitely something that I was aiming to achieve was... Um, and from the people I spoke to, from the interviewees, you know, it, you know, in 1967, Charles Manson, and in 1968, Charles Manson wasn't thinking of violent acts. Charles Manson was like a number of other people was caught up in this hippie dream that there was a new world coming, that there was going to be a utopia, that, you know, oh, the old order was going to stop existing. Charles Manson was living off of, out of garbage dumps and thought he could just have a commune and, you know, to be fair, have sex with a number of girls, anyone he wanted, any night. They all were, you know, he had his harem in that sense. And so... I, I don't know. I don't think I don't. I, the interesting thing is, I don't think it was. I think it was the power of the music that drew these people to Manson, but it was the times, and it was the tumult of the times, and it was Manson's criminal background and his continued um, existence within criminality. Right? If you're living on your own in the middle of nowhere in a, in the desert, you, you're gonna. You need money. You need something to be able to exist. And so, what did Manson do? He hooks up with a bunch of bikers and he you know, gets, does, you know, speed deals and acid deals and masculine deals, you know, everything becomes involved with drugs. And I think that's a key point about the drugs culture is that, you know, we, by, by drugs being illegal, it immediately meant that these kids were drawn into a world of illegality in a way that they may not have been if the drugs had remained legal. You know, acid was legal in 1966. So I think that makes a, that also makes a difference, I think. You mentioned before the song ceased to exist. That kind of like was the path to Manson getting before the murders, of course, the most kind of mainstream success of his of, of his life by then. And the, because the Beach Boys rewrote that song, and it comes back to you were talking before about Dennis Wilson. And um, I mean, Dennis Wilson really took to Charles Manson for a lot of different reasons. He had the girls, he had the drugs. 
I think to me, though, that when watching your documentary, it's very clear that Dennis Wilson was looking to achieve credibility on his own outside of what was happening with, with, with the Beach Boys at that time, which at that point um, wasn't really cool. I mean, the Beach Boys were like, the, were like a, a thing for the early 60s, not the mid-late 60s. Um, do, do you feel the same way that, that Dennis Wilson saw Charles Manson as kind of like a pathway to get, gaining some type of credibility um, because this guy... By all accounts, like you said before, looked like to be the future of the music industry. Yeah, I mean, there's no question of it. Dennis Wilson, um, he had worked with a guy called Stephen Kalinich, um, who later worked again with Brian Wilson, who was a poet, um, and he wrote uh, Dennis Wilson's first song with him. And Kalinich is almost like the absolute antithesis of Charles Manson. He's a hippie. He's a beautiful, really nice guy, um, and. Um, but you know, he's very much of that kind of acid, you know, uh, find inner meaning, inner peace, etc., kind of guy. And Dennis was obviously really, I mean, Dennis, the, the Beach Boys had just been hanging out with the Maharishi. I mean, it wasn't just because the Beach Boys didn't seem that cool. All of them were really interested in countercultural ideas, all of them were interested in the idea of, you know, gurus, etc. Um, and so, in that sense, I think, yeah, I think Manson was, Manson offered Dennis, um, yeah, a way out of being guys writing songs about beaches and girls and cars. And, you know, and Brian had already tried to do that with a Smile album, had been shut down, um, um, arguably by Mike Love and of the Beach Boys, and, and who wanted the Beach Boys to continue in their commercial direction. And so Dennis, like Brian, started to look for ways outside of the Beach Boys um, to have some kind of... Um, yeah, to have some kind of creative pleasure in what he was doing rather than just being the drummer of the Beach Boys, you know. Um, after the murders, Charles Manson actually finally released an album. It was called um, Lie, the, the Love and Terror Cult. And you spoke to someone called Phil Kaufman. Now, he was a, a cellmate of Manson's, um, I think, what, back in the early 60s, late 50s, I think they were uh, together, and they kept in touch afterwards. Yeah. And, and Phil Kaufman was a guy who was like, oh, there's no way Charlie did these murders, and he kind of stuck by him and, uh, and helped him release these albums. In, in, in releasing that, that album in particular, um, why do you think the motivations were behind Charles Manson do it? Was it purely financial to, to get money to help his case, or do you think it was another attempt from him to try, to, try to, to preach on a mass scale now that he has some type of, type of notoriety? Was he hoping that that type of uh, uh, publicity... And you know what to say, any publicity is good publicity. Was he hoping that that will kind of help him kind of spread his preach amongst his uh, uh, two people uh, through his music? Yeah, absolutely. I think it's both of those things. I think he had to, he, he had the issue that, you know, he had to keep the girls on side and he had to keep paying their legal fees and ensure that they kept with him. And he also had his own. Uh, uh, costs involved and at the same point I think that's always what his music was about um, and you know to an extent you could say you know he'd seen that the Beatles you know now I'm, I'm not sure what you could argue that John Lennon was preaching you could argue that certainly by the late 60s by by um, yeah maybe not give well yeah give peace a chance even then as, as a protest song but it is a song that's certainly um, preaching a message in a way, and as is imagined. As you know, so if if the Beatles were able to do it, why couldn't he do it? You know, and so his vision of it was, well, 
yeah, all Bob Dylan was able to do it right back in the earlier sixties. Why can't I do it? And 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 so his music was definitely about um, enthralling people to his message, so that people reacted to his music in the same way that he'd reacted to the Beatles music. So in the same way that he'd been obsessed by the white album and, and beforehand, which I did have some, but it didn't go in the film, but he was massively obsessed by magical mystery talk before that. Mm. That's why, that's why he got the school bus. Right. And so oh, he wanted okay. them, Interesting. All right. yeah, he wanted them all to go on their magical mystery tour. So I spoke to Lynette a lot about this, but obviously she couldn't be in the film, but like she was saying like before the white album, the magical mystery tour was the album they listened to again and again and again. And so Manson did that with the Beatles music and he wanted, he imagined in his, in his mind, people doing that with his music. And so that's kind of why I think, you know, with the lie album, he thought people are going to listen to this and think, how can this unbelievable, you know, philosopher of truth and knowledge and love, this guy can't be the killer. Hence it's called the lie album because it was based on the idea that it's a lie. It's all made up. Charles Manson didn't kill these people. He's being framed. He knew that conspiracy theories were flying around during this time, rightly and wrongly. And he thought that, you know, he could bring himself into this world of conspiracy and be seen as some kind of patsy in a way. You have, we mentioned, I talked about before that you've had a career documenting all types of different artists and uh, you're I'm clearly a big fan of music, music history. When you do a documentary like this and you see someone like Charles Manson and affiliations that he had and, and such, is that, does that change your perception in any type of way of some of the artists you would have been a fan of beforehand? Like, do you, when you listen to a Beach Boys song now, does that image of Charles Manson creep into your mind a bit? Do things, has things changed for you post this documentary? Um, no, not, not really. I mean, I've, I've got to say, I think I always had a great amount of, well, I did a, um, uh, a film on, we did a two-part film on Brian Wilson, which really looked individually at Brian Wilson through the Beach Boys. And, um, you know, obviously I had a great amount of sympathy for Brian Wilson. And the film I actually directed, which was the second one, looked at Brian Wilson's, kind of, let's call it the bed years. It was mm. kind of, yeah, it looked at Brian Wilson's difficult years. And I always had a huge amount of sympathy for Brian Wilson, um, a huge amount of sympathy. And I think with doing this film, as, as I got to start, not so much the research, when I actually got to speaking to people and realized how close, I mean, Diane specifically and Greg Jacobson, who was Dennis Wilson's songwriting partner, when I realized how close Dennis was and the kind of the way in which Dennis's dreams had kind of been broken with Manson, you know, that, that to me means that I just have a whole load of more sympathy for Dennis, actually. And the way that I made the film became so much more sympathetic to Dennis when I realised, actually, almost, but certainly towards the end of the film, I realised I'm making a film about Dennis by now, not really about Charles Manson. This is, it, it's, it's, it is still about Manson, but it really is about Dennis as well. And, you know, I see him as this tragic figure who... I don't think I've actually I've had emails from the guys I interviewed and Desper Stephen Desper who was um, the Beach Boys engineer um, for a number of years. He got in touch and he said it, it's watching your film that's made me realise how much even we who were close to with Dennis all the time never really realised how much this impacted on Dennis. And I think that's 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 the difference for me is just having a huge amount more sympathy for Dennis really. So for everyone out there listening on right now on video on demand, Manson Music from an unsound, unsound Mind. It's such a fascinating documentary. And 
like I said in my intro, there's so much content about Charles Manson, especially this year with the anniversary of the um, the um, Sharon Tate uh, murders. But this documentary really does put a fresh spin on things and just looks at it in a different way, and that's through the music. And look, Tom O'Dell, I think you've done really terrific uh, work here with this documentary. It's such a fascinating film, and you put it all together so um, in such a fascinating way. So congratulations to you with your movie, and thank you again uh, for joining me on the podcast to talk about it. Fantastic. Thank you very much, Matt.